Kreusel. Hello and welcome to this episode of the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. In this week's episode, we speak to a gentleman by the name of Fred Raffle. Fred is a long-standing Glamorgan supporter who has followed the county to all the other first-class county grounds, as well as following the England cricket team on over 30 tours abroad. All of which makes Fred sound like a regular cricket aficionado who has the time to indulge his passion for watching the game, until you discover that he's one of 350,000 people in the UK who are registered blind or partially sighted. I arranged to speak to Fred over the telephone and began by asking him how he came to discover his own blindness. I've never been able to see. I think my mother must have known that there was something wrong, but I tended to um, misjudge things and get bashed a bit. And it was just thought that a boy baby is a bit adventurous, so nothing, no problem. And when I got to age five and had to go to school, I went to the local school where it was pretty obvious that I wasn't able to see. But because I seemed to be intelligent, I could get away with things and just get by. At the When I got to seven years old, um, it was found that I couldn't do the necessary reading from the distance that I was supposed to be trying to read. And I couldn't write on lines because I couldn't even see that there were lines there. They sent me for um, various tests. I cheated, actually, because I didn't want them to find that I was blind. And so I learned the eye chart off my heart. And when they tested my eyes, I read the chart perfectly. So I went for another test, and they asked me to read the chart, which I did from memory. And I heard a nurse whisper something into the specialist's ear, and he said, oh, no, no, no. And she went to the chart, and she did something, which I couldn't see even what she did. And what she had done was put another chart on top of the one that was on the wall. And I read the one that was underneath, and they said, oh, dear, what can we do with you? So they sent me off to a hospital in Newcastle, which I went to for 21, 22 weeks every Saturday morning. I wasn't allowed to miss school. Went every Saturday morning for 22 weeks, and they told me there was nothing they could do. So I, I took a 11-plus um, exam when I was 10, <clears throat> and my headmaster realized that I was clever enough to get a scholarship, but... I wasn't able to read the paper. Um, And so they asked for somebody to read it to me, and this was granted, and I was awarded one of the scholarships. But the grammar school, local grammar school, didn't want to have a blind child. And so they said they didn't believe. I must have cheated because the reader must have done it for me. So I had to go and do another one, up at the grammar school itself with one of their masters doing the reading for me. And I passed it again. And so they had to accept me, but they couldn't cope. And so they found that there was a school for blind girls in Chorley Wood in Hertfordshire, and so therefore there must be one for blind boys somewhere. And they found that there was a, a school for blind boys in Newcastle and a school for blind boys in... Worcester. 
And so I chose Worcester. So I had to go down and do a public school entrance for Worcester, which was then a public school, and boys only, <clears throat> boarding school. The headmaster liked the look of me, I hope, and said, why don't you just stay? Sent my mother home, and I stayed at Worcester for seven years. And that's when my life changed for the better. I was no longer struggling, and I had to learn, I learned Braille and learned how to be a blind boy amongst other blind boys. Was that, that early part of your life a, a real struggle, uh, Fred? It was a tremendous struggle. My mother was a widow. She was unable to read and write. She had lived in a remote part of Northumberland, which involved going across the river by rowing boat to go to school. And as she was the oldest of 11 children, she looked after the rest of the family and so never went to school. If you missed the boat, then you didn't go to school. And in those days, they didn't bother too much. So she wasn't able to help me very much. So what I did was I taught her the letters. And she, although she could recognize the letters, she couldn't read the words. But she actually spelt every word to me which was fine when I was at the primary school. But when I went to the grammar school and we started doing Latin and French, it just got very, very difficult, actually. Everybody thinks it would be an actually an awful thing to be sent away as a young boy. I was 12 when I went to, to Worcester, and I absolutely loved it. I stayed there until I was 19. So was it in that period at Worcester where sport came into your life? Definitely. I was always keen to do sport, and but I wasn't allowed. And I used to sit out in the gym on the benches at the end of the gym while they were all doing things and long to be able to do them. Um, the cricket ground in my town was just opposite the grammar school, actually, and some of our boys actually went to play there, but I never went anywhere near it because I was frightened of the ball. So when I went to Worcester, the, one of the first things I was asked was, which cricket team do you support? Because everybody at Worcester was nuts on cricket. A lot, many, many blind youngsters are very, very keen on cricket. And... I just said, well, none, because we don't have any cricket. And they said, but you come from the north of England. You can support Yorkshire. And I said, Yorkshire's not in the north. And anyway, no self-respecting Northumbrian could do that. I was assigned um, a lad in my class, and he came from Cardiff. And he had no trace of a Welsh accent. So they thought that it was um, a good idea for him to groom me. And he said, well, which cricket team do you think you'll assign to? Um, because you've got to have one, otherwise they'll tease you. So I said, I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, I support Glamorgan, and I'm the only one here in the whole school who supports Glamorgan. So just say Glamorgan if anybody asks you. And John Arlott, the commentator, absolutely loved Glamorgan, as you know. And he... He used to wax eloquent about Swansea and Swansea Bay and the Gower and how wonderful the Gower was. And, of course, he always um, brought in Don Shepherd, who was one of his favourite players, and he thought he should have played for England, and he tried to champion his cause on every, um, every commentary. So Don became 
our hero or my particular hero. And on Sundays, we used to listen at one o'clock to find out who was in the test team and listen to see if Don was in it. And of course, he never was. So um, that's how I started with Glamorgan. But the actual game itself, I had to learn. Um, we played a form of cricket, which was available only, well, we devised this game at school where we used football, which in those days they were leather cased footballs with laces. And we put inside the football some dried peas, maybe about seven or eight dried peas into the football and pumped it up hard and laced it up. And we used that as the ball and we used a suitcase as a wicket, as the stumps, and we played with each other. We played amongst ourselves. On Coronation Day in 1953, we weren't allowed to go home. We were allowed to play cricket all day. So we did play a proper match, which was the first time ever. So what happened was we, we had two matches. We, there were only 60 boys in the whole school. So somehow everybody took some sort of part and we had two junior teams playing on the junior lawn and um, two senior teams playing on the what we call the front lawn the big one um, and they, they played a proper match with scores and everything like that and that, that was the only time I knew a proper match taking place. You went on to university and then beyond that a career as a teacher when did you start following the Glamorgan cricket team and after that the England cricket team all, all over the world? In 1990, when I was I was running this course, a post, postgraduate course in, at the university in Birmingham for specialist workers who used to have to do six months theoretical work and then six months practical back in local authorities throughout the land. And my function was to go and visit them while they were on their practical. And one of the people I had to visit was assigned to East Sussex Social Services. And I booked into the Dudley Hotel in Hove to go down and see him for the day, the next day. So we were, I agreed to meet up with him in the, in the hotel bar. When we were in the bar, they, the Morgan team checked in I was sitting with him. I had a guide dog and a gentleman came over and asked, he had a Welsh accent and he asked if he could stroke the dog. And I asked him where he came from. And he said he was from the Gower. And I said, um, that was Don Shepherd country. And he said, why do you say that? And he said it in a sort of snappy voice. And I thought maybe he didn't like Don. So I said, well, because Don was my hero when I was a boy. And he said, but I am Don Shepherd," And I couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, I thought he was teasing me because some people do do that. And I thought, no, surely he can't be. Anyway, he said, I'm commentating with Edward Bevan tomorrow at the ground in Hove. Do you want to come? And I said, I'd love to. He said, you can come and sit with us and you can listen to the commentary and so on. And I said, well, I'd love to, but I can't because I'm, I'm supposed to be working. And he said, he said, Don said, bugger that. So I did, I'm afraid. And um, I rang up the person I was supposed to be visiting and said, could I come early instead of coming at nine? Could I come at 
8 or 7.30 and get everything done before 11 when play started. And she said she agreed. And so I did that and went round to the ground and stayed uh, in the commentary box with them um, as a favour. And I thought it was going to be a one-off, but um, they, they were very friendly and very kind to me and said, when we play it, I lived in Birmingham, so they said, when we play Warwickshire, come around, you see. And that's when it all started, really. And they said, well, next week we're playing at so-and-so. So I said, well, I can't come except on the Saturday and Sunday. So I would um, leave work on a Friday night and, and go there. We played a match in Hartlepool against Durham, and... Um, I travelled up to Hartlepool and stayed in the same hotel as, as the boys. And um, the, they said to me, Edward, said, Edward Bevan said to me, well, why don't you organise to share a room with Andrew Hicknell? Because there are three, there are three of us in the broadcasting and Andrew comes from his school Every, every weekend, and if you came weekends from your school or your university, we could you could share with Andrew, and it would save costs for you both. And so that's what we did. Um, so from then on, every Saturday morning or Friday night, we would travel to wherever they were playing, and I would stay in the same hotel as the players, and the and sit in the commentary area. Um, and it was through that that I got to know all the various journalists and so on. And I travelled with Glamorgan to all their games and so therefore managed to get to all the headquarters grounds plus some outgrounds and the two university grounds um, during the, uh, the 90s. We even went over to Ireland to, um, in 93, I think, to play a match in Clontarf, and I flew out with the team. I had been working in Northern Ireland for a year, going over a lot with the dog, and I, um, <laughs> I, I had no, I'd never travelled to Dublin, and so I was used to going by, by plane. What happens on a plane is they assign a seat to the dog, but he doesn't sit in it. He sits in the footway of that passenger seat. So they, they know that he's on board. But um, when I got to check in with Andrew, they issued me a boarding card with Mr. G Dog written on it. <laughs> dog. And I'd never had this before. And we went onto the plane and it caused consternation because when they counted the passengers, it didn't match up to the number on uh, uh, the number of boarding cards. And we had to explain that there was a boarding card for the dog, which there shouldn't have been. I knew there shouldn't have been, but they, they insisted that, they, that I had one. And so that Andrew thought, all the boys thought that was wonderful. And of course, that particular dog was a black dog, black lab, and his name was Ivor. And Don Shepherd said, really, it was called Ivor from, because IV, it's not I-V-O-R, he said, it's I-V-A-R after Viv. And so, so they, they all liked that very much. But as I say, it travelled all over with them. That Irish trip is mentioned in um, Mike Fatkin's book, and it's all, he also mentions the 1999 trip to Blackpool, where Duncan Fletcher insisted that the team all went on the Big Dipper. 
And some, certain of the team were a bit frightened to go on that. They didn't want to, and I longed to go on it. So I said, I'll do it. And, and um, of course, all these lads decided, um, volunteered to look after my dog while I went on so that they wouldn't have to go on. Um, anyway, I went on with um, Duncan and Matthew and Richard Thomas, and apparently there's a picture somewhere, and the only one of us who's got their eyes closed is me. And that, they thought that was funny. When I retired from my job in 1994, I desperately wanted to go on overseas tours. So I applied to several travel companies to ask if I could uh, could travel. And they refused me because I was blind. And um, they said I'd have to have somebody to look after me. And I didn't, I didn't think I needed that. Um, and, but the Discrimination Act wasn't in operation in those days. And so I, um, I thought, well, I'll, that just won't happen. And in 95, Lynn Thomas, who um, is a member of Glamorgan, and I hadn't met him until that point, uh, he was going to organise a... He'd organised a trip to the West Indies with Don the previous winter. And Don said, oh, you go to South Africa. Um, and Lynn said, you're coming with us. So... He just, it just, it was just given, a given, you know. And I said, but I won't be, you know. I, they, they insist that I have to share a room and so on. And he said, well, we'll find somebody to share with you. So he did, and we went to South Africa. Um, but because of the political situation, the it was the first trip after apartheid. They wouldn't allow Lynn to organise it. I think for some reason or other, it had to go through a, a registered travel agent, and that was. Um, Barry Duddleston took it over. It had so happened that he did all the bookings for the Sky commentary team. Uh, Barry took us on Christmas Day. We went to a barbecue and we met Godfrey Evans, which was a great um, treat for me. And so it, it, that was that was sort of how it started. I didn't go into... I only went to visit the commentary area. I didn't get to go to stay in on that particular tour. But I got the bug for travel, so I, the next year I asked uh, Barry if I could go to Zimbabwe. Well, tell us a little bit about what it's like uh, sitting in that commentary box and listening to those very familiar voices um, just a few kind of feet away from you. I think it's it's a great honour and privilege for me. Um, I was in when I first went in into the commentary area. I was in awe of all these people, and I just love the way that they analyse the game. And I realised that I thought I knew something about it, but um, they know so much more. And I love just listening to um, all the things they say on and off air. And I think I said that one of my worries was over food because um, they give me uh, food when I'm in, in the commentary area and I don't want to make a mess of eating it. And I remember on one occasion in the early days, uh, Mark Nicholas was with us in those days, and he came into the commentary area as Ian Botham was serving me my first course uh, on a tray and explaining to me wh where things were and everything. And Mark said, what does it feel like to have your lunch served by a legend? And I, I said, well, quite 
really mar- marvellous, in fact. And he went off to do an interview. And when he came back, Michael Holding was serving my pudding. And he said, oh, my God, I can't bear it. Two legends in one lunchtime. <laughs> and I thought it was magnificent. Um, but we we also have, I mean, we have lots of people coming into the commentary area who are not cricketers, but in, uh, from other walks of life, from the entertainment world or from the music world and so on. And I've been fortunate to be introduced to them, people like Chris Lowe from the BBC and um, Tim Rice, who comes a lot to cricket societies. And Stephen Fry came to India on tour, well, he visited us while he was in India, um, and uh, Rory Bremner toured West Indies with a friend of his, one of the Cowdery boys, and he came into the commentary box, and, we, and I, I got to know those people too. And I think what what I find a great honour and privilege is that the boys have got to know me so well that they can make jokes about me which means that I feel I'm included. Mm-hmm. And so they say things like, if a cricketer drops a catch, Ian Bosom or someone like that will turn to me and say, good heavens, Fred, you could have caught that. Not sure that I could, but <laughs> and if an LBW appeal is turned down, they'll say, even you could have seen that that was plum," and things like that, mm-hmm. which I think is a, is, is a, you know, it's a sign of inclusion. When I shared a room with Barry Duddleston, we used to walk into the ground and the players would say, which one of you is umpiring today? I think it better be the blind one. He's more used and things like that. And so, and I thought, I I didn't mind that at all. Um, We were in, when we were in India, I was sitting in the back of the commentary box and Stephen Fry stood in front of me and David, David Gower very playfully said, um, don't, don't worry, Fred, uh, Stephen's uh, blocking your view, but I'm sure you'll manage. And Stephen turned around and he didn't know me, of course, and he turned around and said, oh, I'm awfully sorry. Um, I, I didn't read that. And then everybody laughed because uh, Stephen had been uh, fooled, you know. And, and I thought that was great fun, really. What about giving us a sense of the places that you've visited, uh, Fred, because you must have visited almost all, if not all, the test-playing countries? Yes, I have. Um, I've done 37 tours, mostly one with Australia, but the others with England. I'm an inveterate counter, I suppose, having shared a room with Andrew Hignall for so many years, and I also share with Lynn Thomas um, abroad, uh, and sometimes in the counties. And he, we are, we're very keen on the statistics and, um, and who plays for whom and that sort of thing. The, um, and I, um, I, I like to count things up, and um, I have visited all the playing country, all the countries in which we play. And I think I have been with Glamorgan on 61 different grounds. And funnily enough, with England on 61 different grounds. I've been very lucky to to go to all these places, never thinking I ever would. When I first toured the world with England and did all the countries, I I thought, well, what do I do now? Shall I give up? And then I decided that I'd done all the countries in the commentary area, so maybe I'd go around again and try them all in the crowd to see the difference, because in the commentary area, it's obviously 
air-conditioned and we're sealed from the noise and so on. So I decided to sit in the crowd for many of the... Um, I think I've done most of the countries in the crowd and in the commentary area. Mm-hmm. And with the counties, I decided I'd try to get every county that Glamorgan... Well, get the full set that Glamorgan played. And then I thought, How, what do I do now? Ah, right, we'll try doing home and away. So I've done every county home and away with Glamorgan as well. So I keep, and if there's ever a new ground that anybody goes to, I try desperately to get to it. Mm. Unfortunately, I didn't mount, manage to get to Mount Monganui in New Zealand, but um, I've done many of the others. Other particular grounds, particularly perhaps where you weren't in the commentary box and you were in amongst the crowd. Uh, are there any particular ones that, that that spring to mind or that you have stories about? Indian grounds are, are in, before the World Cup that they had there and they modernised all the grounds. They were a bit um, difficult. They weren't um, that clean. <laughs> uh, and uh, the seats weren't, weren't brilliant. But and, and, of course, it was very crowded. But the people are so wonderful and they... Um, you know, we talked. We talked, and they they were fascinated by the fact that a, a white blind person should uh, be sitting there amongst them. You know, um, which I found that fascinating. And in Bangladesh, the um, I remember I was in the commentary area with um, Wazim Akram, and we were coming out. We came out, and the people were all flocking round us because it was him. You know, they wanted to talk to him, but they kept patting me. Because, and I was a little bit worried that, you know, whether you read stories about people patting you in case you've got money in your pockets or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they were touching me because, they, well, I asked one of the um, Bangladeshi people why it was that they were doing this. And they said, well, they're, they're so fascinated. They've never seen anybody so old or so white. <laughs> Which I thought was quite fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but... And did you do most of these trips that you did, Fred, did you do them on your own or did you have a friend or or, or somebody with you to help you? And did you have your dog with you? No, no, the dog wasn't, uh, didn't go abroad. And this is, again, uh, actually interesting because the dog was a great attraction uh, in the county circuit and he always got more of the attention than I did. And... I always worried that the dog might cause difficulties in the commentary area um, because, as you probably are aware, the commentary area has lots of um, gadgets and wires and, and things. And I tend to sit at the, the rear of the commentary area and the, the, the wires, the um, cables are running across and round me and off, and I don't dare move in case I disconnect something or other and uh, on a couple of occasions we have had mishaps in that uh, I think at Essex we were at um, Colchester and we were comment uh, Edward uh, and Bevan and Nick Webb were commentating for Radio Wales outdoors and I was sitting at the end of the table outdoors with my dog to my side on the ground and the cable was running from the commentary area to a radio van and relaying the commentary back to Wales. And Matthew Maynard has a, 
is very, very keen on the dogs. And the dogs are absolutely love him. All my dogs have absolutely loved Matt. He tends to take them for a run when he's um, finished his innings or something like that. Uh, if he's out early, he, he wants to run it off and get ready, run his anger off, so he takes the dog. And if he's um, if he gets a big score, he's so elated, he, he takes the dog for a run. So either way, the dog wins. And his dog always leaps on him whenever, whenever we see him. And uh, I was dreading that this might happen. And Matt was coming over to do an interview with the... Um, with for the radio and as he approached the dog leapt up caught his paw in the cable running to the radio car and disconnected the the um the service to cardiff now when it was restored edward bevan ever the professional said Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. It's just sort of um, gremlin on the line. Uh, the things we have to put up with when we're commentating outdoors, etc. And he carried on with his commentary. But when Nick Webb came on, he exposed us and actually explained to the audience what had actually happened, <laughs> which was nice. Um, it happened even worse in a test match at... I was sitting in the back of the commentary with box with with it was an ashes test and we were um, and I was sitting there with all the wires all the cables all around my feet and the dog down there and I thought if Matt were I was just going through my head if Matt were to walk in through that door hell would let loose because the commentary box at Edgerton is quite small and they brought me my lunch on a, tra a sort of airline type tray and put it on my lap. And I was balancing this thing with the dog below it and threading that um, anything might happen. And Matt put his head around the door. He was um, he was injured at the time, so he wasn't playing for long. And so he came up to the game, put his head around the door. The dog leapt up and he disconnected the world feed for the whole of the cricketing world to, they, who were carrying the highlight of the morning's play. <laughs> so I was not a popular person that day with our producer, I'm afraid. <laughs> but other than that, as I say, the dog has always attracted people. But the, the international people have never known me with the dog because unless I went to test matches in England, which is fairly rare because I'm normally with Glamorgan, and so um, a lot of them didn't know the dog, so they knew me. And a uh, um, benefit do in Colwyn Bay, yes, I did know. We were, um, I can't remember whose benefit it was. I think it might have been Stephen Watkin, Steve Watkin. And I had the dog under the table and nobody at the table we were eating from, and nobody actually knew he was there. They didn't seem to know. He was, he was a very good dog. He just went under there and stayed. And when we stood for the toast, the dog stood as well, because uh, we, yeah, they're trained that when we stand up, they stand up. And he stood up as well, and it was a low table, and the table started to lift into the air, and people, <laughs> some of the ladies on the table said, oh, what's happening? <laughs> and I thought uh, the table was levitating, which was quite funny. And of course, if anybody dropped anything, like um, any food, or uh, if they went away, <laughs> it, 
they, one of my dogs used to shred the paper serviettes off people's laps. Um, and if they didn't know he was underneath and they went to wipe their fingers on their serviette, he would lick the fingers and they'd give, give them a bit of a shock. One of the great myths is that we're brilliant at recognising voices and also that we feel faces. I've never known a blind person feel a face mm. and Many, many are good at voices, but I'm I'm not terribly good. Um, and I, I get really angry if people speak to me and don't tell me who they are. And if they disappear without saying they're going, uh, that's even worse. They just disappear and you're left talking to thin air and somebody says, who are you talking to? And you feel an absolute idiot. But um, the Glamorgan boys, now I don't know how it's ever happened. I don't know whether it's just... Um, happenstance or somebody told them that you know over all the years the morgan boys just come up to me and say hi fred it's so and so whoever it is hi fred it's tony hi fred it's what you know whatever mm -hmm. and that's marvelous because you then don't make a mistake because if you think it's somebody else and that's a somebody else you want to moan about and it isn't it's the actual person that you're moaning about <laughs> it can be embarrassing and i've forgiven there are on three occasions when I have, um, it just shows how my love of cricket. I won't, I don't like to forgive people who don't tell me who they are, but on three, three occasions I've been honoured. I was walking back from a test match in Adelaide and somebody came up and jumped on my back and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm being attacked. And he said in my right ear, guess who? And, oh, that's the dreaded question. Mm. And it could have been anybody. You know? It could even have been your brother and you wouldn't recognize him. You know? So <laughs> um, I, I said, give me a clue. And he said, I'm a Yorkshireman and I live down south. And I said, um, and I signed desperately to think who that could be. And then he, he said, do you want another clue? And I said, yeah, he said, I took a hat trick at Sydney. <laughs> and it was, of course, Darren Goff. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the, the, say, the other occasion, just recently, I was walking through the tunnel at Cape Town at Newlands, where you go under the railway line through a tunnel and in, into the ground. And a big hand came onto my shoulder and into my ear came this lovely velvety voice saying, Hello, Fred, guess who? And it was the... The voice you could hardly ever mistake was Michael Holding, so I thought that was a, a great honour. And the only other time it's happened to me was in a hotel in Sri Lanka where a person came up with his son and asked me to guess who it was, and I hadn't a clue, and it, that was Russell Arnold. So I, I forgave all of those people simply because they were test cricketers. <laughs> but that, that's the way I think. I hope it's not an ignorant question, Fred, but... For for me, if I'm listening to commentary, I have a picture in my mind of, of the game and the match and the players and and so on. Do you have that too? Do you create that picture in your mind? Or? Yes, I do. It probably doesn't um, bear any relation to what's actually happening. When I go into a ground, I try to work out where we're sitting. Uh, if I'm sitting in the crowd, I want to know where we are in relation to a right-handed batsman at a particular end, you know, so that I can work out whether we're at mid-wicket or long-off or where, wherever we are, you know. And then I can um, can can try to uh, picture 
when they say so-and-so is fielding at the slip and so-and-so is fielding at, at um, backward short or whatever, and then I can work out where that is in my head. Um, so I try to do that, yes. But as far as what people might look like or what their shots might look like, I have no real idea. But I do try to, to work out the picture. But in my head, they're, all, they're always playing white, mm-hmm. even if it's a one-day game. You know, I can't conceive of these... Um, funny colours. What are your highlights of following Glamorgan, uh, Fred? Uh, any of the major sort of uh, victories that the club has had over the last well, 20, 30 years? Well, definitely 93 um, at, um, at, at Canterbury. Um, in fact, it was one of the only times I was mentioned on the Coventry, I think. Uh, Edward was so excited at the end, he said goodnight from um, you know, Don Shepherd, myself, Andrew Hignall, and me. <laughs> he mentioned me on that occasion. Um, and um, then we went, actually, after the game, we went into the dressing room. Uh, I was honoured to be allowed into the actual dressing room with the players. I was amazed at how small it was and how crowded it was with all their gear and everything. Um, and there, you know, we were hugged by people like um, the great Vivian. Um, so that was that was, that was marvellous. And I was also there um, when they won at, at um, in the rain at um, Taunton in '97 when we won the championship. Uh, when Matt scored a century without a single single in it, um, and I went went to Lords when for the final uh, that we lost against Gloucester in 2000. It's a great honour for me to be allowed into the dressing rooms, and I have been into the dressing rooms uh, on, in a few of the grounds, simply because I know, well, mainly Matthew, who is a great friend of mine. It's incredible listening to your story, Fred, because you, it, it, it makes you feel, uh, as, as a cricket lover as I am, um, a little bit diminished that somebody who's perhaps faced so many difficulties and obstacles has done so much when you think about your life, do you do you think of it uh, that it's been in any way diminished by your lack of sight, or has uh, uh, does that no. not not figure in it for you? No, I think it's been enhanced. Um, I don't don't think it's been diminished in any way. Um, I often think that, you know, having come from a poor background in a um, in a remote or, or sort of Long, far distant area. Uh, in my town, all the boys went into the shipyard or the pits, and if you had any intelligence, you tended to go into the banks or something like that. And I would have hated to do. I couldn't have done any of those things. Well, possibly the bank, but I wouldn't have been interested. Um, and as I say, as I said at the beginning, I was struggling tremendously to try and keep up with people. And then when I went to um, to, to Worcester and was with people um, who all had the same um, physical difficulty, and we, we I learned so much. And the philosophy of the school was you can because you think you can. And if you, um, you have to be not just as good as everybody else, but you try to strive to be better. And that's what we tried to do. It, it gave you an incentive, really, I suppose, to say, I can do it despite. Um, and that's um, how I looked at it anyway, and I'm sure most of us did. 
And do you have any particular thoughts about cricket and its inclusivity? Do you do you feel that the game has done a lot of really good things to include people with disabilities of, of, of any kind and, and perhaps those that lack sight or are blind in particular? Well, ECB has done a lot of work to include disabled um, players and the blind players now um, have a they're represented there and they have their own paid coach and um, they go on tours and they, they um, it's all very well organised. And I do believe that the cricketing family is a caring family. All families have problems, but you have to um, come to terms with the problems and solve them within the family. And I think there is a... Um, a cricketing family and I think it's been wonderful to me and in all the times that I have travelled and all the matches that I've done I've never had anybody be nasty to me so I think that speaks volumes and I have been all around the world and, and I've met wonderful players from every country that plays cricket so I, I, I think it's it's just a, a, a wonderful game the camaraderie the, the stories, the, the spirit is, is amazing. Do you have any other sort of final thoughts or messages on uh, your life uh, uh, as a cricket supporter and a cricket fan? Well, I'd like to be able to thank everybody for um, the wonderful times I've had and particularly um, the, the Glamorgan people, um, as I say, from a coincidence of meeting um, Don Shepherd and Edward Bevan in, um, in, in Hove in 1990 and having the the, well, the brass neck, I suppose, to go and see them again in Edgbaston. And from there, everything started. Through them, I met lots of the press people, and that's how I got into the England side. So we could say the network started. Um, and I have to thank them particularly for the beginning of it. And then for Andrew, Andrew Hignall for putting up with me for all 15, 16 years sharing rooms. And he's always been uh, friendly and helpful to me. And um, and in the with the commentary people, with the Sky people, they were all Michael Atherton, David Gower, and, um, Ian Both, um, Nick Knight, Nasser Hussein, uh, Dominic Cork, uh, all sorts of people who've been phenomenal to me. So. And, and a lot of the all the overseas players um, that I've met, they've all been absolutely wonderful. Um, it, it's all been a wonderful time, and, I, and, and I'm glad it's coming to a close. But unfortunately, not only do I not, um, I'm not walking very well now because I have a dodgy arthritic hip, but I shall struggle on as best I can. Okay, Fred, it's been an absolute joy listening to you talk about your cricketing memories uh, really enjoyed it uh, i hope you've enjoyed talking to us as well i have enjoyed it and i hope that people don't think i was an inveterate name dropper but i probably am <laughs> <laughs> many thanks to fred for giving us his time and sharing some of his memories with us i hope fred won't mind if i let slip that one of his claims to fame is that he has been guided to the toilet by no less than six ex-England captains. I'll leave you to work out who they might be. 
Our next episode will be our last for 2021 and takes the form of a podcast review. We've invited back some of our guests this year to chat about their cricketing year and to comment on some of the podcast highlights. Alian Rees-Chillers and Jan Gray, who have both recorded episodes of the pod, will be joined here as well with uh, Mike Knight, MBE of Newport Cricket Club, Richard Thomas, author of the book Cricketing Lives, a characterful history from pitch to page, and Chris Peregrine, member of Club Cricket Bronwith, who also helped us bring you the story of the Swansea Midweek Leagues. So do join us for our podcast review when we'll be hearing once again some stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Hoilvaur, bye for now. Oes gyda chi stori yw'r hanni gyda ni? Mae croeswch i gysylltu. E-bosiwch mwcpod1921 at gmail.com Neu ewch i'n tudalen Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Neu i'n tudalen Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email mwcpod1921 at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast, or our Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod.